I'm Jill Shaw, and I'm here with Ross Wilson to bring you an update on what happened last night during the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Last night's meeting was a quick one, only four and a half hours with many repeats, public comments, pleading with the school committee and superintendent, and now the mayor, but we'll get to that, to please be transparent and honest about what is happening in our schools. Good morning, Ross. Good morning, Jill. Um, well, I thought it was a it was a faster meeting than normal, but it was full of really some important content. And really, there was two parts of this meeting, Jill. You know, we had a discussion of should schools remain open for our high priority students, given that the rate of, of COVID is over four percent now in the city of Boston, um, and the agreement between the Boston Teachers Union and the city of Boston has been that if the rate gets to that uh, higher percent, uh, or sorry, over four percent, that the schools would close. We heard a lot from, from parents of students with disabilities who are in school for two days a week that it's really important to keep them in school mm-hmm. um, and, and that is really beneficial to have them in school. So that was the first half of the meeting. And then the second half of the meeting was about the potential of a new exam school entrance process, which, which is also uh, highly debated and, and it would be highly contentious potentially. Um, so I look forward to digging in those topics with you. Yeah. Well, great. So the school committee began with an historic event. Mayor Walsh, who has never attended a school committee meeting, joined at the top of the meeting to, I don't know, mayor explain BPS's decision to ignore the science and keep schools open. Our numbers went to 4.1%. And I had a conversation with some leaders in the district, along with the superintendent, and I asked them, what did they think? And what they said was they heard stories from, from four days of education that my child has already made gains and advancements just being back for two days. And I was thinking about parents that were calling me and, and, and writing me and quite honestly, letting me have it because their kids who need some special education never, didn't have an opportunity to have it. And I felt bad and guilty. So the mayor who is a very compassionate soul and who does a great job in public forums, is explaining to all of us the thing that everyone actually believes and cares about. Everyone would love to see our kids back in schools. I think what we're going to hear through the course of the meeting is that folks are very concerned about the conditions of the schools and whether or not those are safe and whether or not they are ready for kids to be back in them. And that's really the issue. The issue is not that anyone thinks that kids should not be in school right now. The issue is that the buildings may not be ready for school for kids to be in. Right, and Jill, this has been the topic that we've been discussing for months now about being ready to be back at school, the school system having the trust of the teachers, the students and the parents that the schools are safe. And clearly, you know, the mayor uh, had some really compelling stories that he told last night that nobody would disagree with. Students need to be back in school, especially our high priority students. And at the same time, the school system needs to do a much better job of gaining the trust of people so that they feel like they're safe back in the schools. And so once again, he came in and set that up, but then we roll out through school committee and we hear not only from the administrative team that there are problems, but also from parents and teachers and, and students in public comment. So, right. So then we, you know, we moved to the superintendent's back to school report um, after the mayor spoke at the school committee, which really was unprecedented. We haven't seen a mayor speak at school committee in a very long time, if not ever. So 
remember, there's only about 1,500 students back at school on any given day. And the school system appears to be having a, a bit of a difficult time getting those students on buses and into schools. Uh, let's play a quote from Sam DePina, the chief of operations for the Boston Public Schools. Uh, last week, we, we, we experienced significant um, operational challenges with TransDev, um, our bus company. Um, our central staff and uh, staff at the Transportation Department um, began the uh, week on Thursday at the yards, monitoring operations, making recommendations, and we were able to have the city assist us with um, um, having a fresh set of eyes observe the sites on Monday and Tuesday, giving us additional recommendations and making changes um, with the company based on that. So Jill, by my calculations here, we there's like less than 2% of kids are back in schools. Um, and, and we're having significant operational challenges with our buses. Uh, is this the first time we've actually put kids on buses in Boston? Like I'm a little confused why, 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 why if we have uh, <laughs> such a small number of kids, we can't make buses run on time. It's unbelievable to me. And you know, we heard from Mr. DePino that there was over 1500 calls to the, the call center on the first few days of school. I think that must be a phone call for every student who was on a bus. Right. Um, come on, like th this is not the way to, to start saying, don't worry, we got this under control, trust us, um, by, by having everybody waiting outside for their bus to come. Right. Um, we also heard a little bit from, from Mr. DePina that potentially that they may be routing, the bus drivers I think may be driving the entire route the entire as route. if yeah. every student is on the bus from the school system. And That's then- what he said. One of our school committee members offered the suggestion, maybe we should pare that down to just the students who are going to school that day. Right. That was like a new idea. Um, and then a parent commented during public comment that, um, that she didn't notice that there was um, the safety practices that they promised to be on the buses, on the buses. And the superintendent's answer to that was to have her call the superintendent directly to, to figure that out. So this is not a scalable solution. Right, right. One. Right. For, for, I mean, the superintendent said a couple of times during this meeting that um, if, if you see a problem, just call her. Um, yeah. maybe, maybe we need to have a little bit more of a, a sort of systems approach to, to thinking about solving problems in BPS since we, we do have over 50,000 students, maybe in, in 125 schools. Yeah. So we started off immediately with, you know, we have operational challenges for the very few students who are going into our schools. And then we heard from Kamani James, a student representative. He had a question for the third school committee meeting in a row, asking about these M7 public transportation cards for our students from seventh to 12th grade. Let's play the quote. So I've heard from teachers and students, not just my, from my school, but others as well, that pickup events for M7s and other school materials have been highly unorganized and haven't been practicing social distancing. Um, this goes back to my request of Mr. DePina at the September 16th school committee meeting to instead mail students on their M7s. And um, at the following meeting, the September 30th one, I believe, um, he said, you know, what it boiled down to is that we were too concerned with the high risk of not being able to have every student get their MBTA passes via mail. And then went on to explain how BPS has about a 50% return rate for mail that they send out and therefore didn't want to risk sending the M7s out in the mail. Um, and I, I think that if BPS actually explored this option, they'd be able to see that, one, students would want their M7s as a means of transportation to get around. Um, and I'm just not understanding why a student would return something that they need as a means of transportation. 
So Ross, good for Kamani to remain diligent on issues that he deems important to students. He's, he's a really terrific representative and an elected representative to the school committee. He, he is also the only one who repeatedly gets shut down in these meetings, um, which we hear about in public comment last night also. Kamani went on to comment on Mr. DePina's excuse that we don't have contact information for about 50% of the students, and this is why we couldn't mail them directly. He wondered, Kamani did, whether or not the administration thought that that was a problem that really needed to be addressed. Later, Dr. Coleman, another school committee member, echoed this question about the lack of reliable contact information held by PPS um, of its students. But uh, the fact that, that we only that fifty percent of the addresses that we send things out we don't we don't have if we send a mailing to the high school and fifty percent are incorrect I think I've heard that twice I mean it was last time and this time and so just would like to have some sense of what we're trying to do to address that you know huge problem you know about tracking you know having the right addresses for a large percentage of our students what's going on there and can we get some feedback on what we're trying to do to solve that problem. So Jill, Kamani asked the question again, you know, shouldn't we get our, our addresses for our students? And there was no response to his, his question. Right. It, was, it was ignored. Um, and then at the very end of the meeting, four hours and 45 minutes in, Dr. Coleman thankfully brings back the question. Mm -hmm. Hey, you know, we have heard a few times now, we don't know where our students live, 50% of our students. Can we solve that problem? And the answer was, we'll have to get back to you on that. Um, so guys, like we need, we need to know where our students live. That's so important. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's been month, like we've had months to figure, figure out um, if, if students have moved, we, we could have been tracking our students very closely. We should have been. Um, and yet, you know, the reason we can't send out M7 passes is because is we believe we don't know where 50% of our kids live in, in, in the school system. Again, not a way to have trust. Well, and, and just to be clear, in, in a pandemic environment where most of the kids are at home at school, it's critically important that we know how to be in touch with them, right? Just for basic human needs, food, shelter, love, all of those things that you can check on when kids walk into your school every day and you're able to have conversations with them and observe them. In, in the conditions within which we are currently schooling our kids, we need to be able to be in contact with them. That's right. Well, Jill, we, we, uh, so hopefully, maybe at the next meeting, we'll hear about um, if we can figure out where our students live. Yeah, well, um, good for Kamani for continuing that's to right. raise the issue. That's right. Uh, so we moved on to public comments. The, the first public comment was from uh, Councilor Arroyo, and he, he did a great job, I thought, summarizing some of the concerns that he's hearing out in the community, both about the percentage of COVID rates, the differences in the neighborhoods in the city of Boston, mm. um, and the disparities of how this pandemic has affected those neighborhoods. And, and he's really trying to put it forward here of saying, look, guys, we, we're making this very complicated. Let's simplify it a bit. Um, let's play the quote from Councilor Arroyo. Uh, my name is Ricardo Arroyo. I'm a Boston City Councilor, and I want to be clear that I understand for all parties involved that none of this is easy, but that doesn't mean it's complicated. This deadly pandemic has disproportionately devastated communities of color, communities that reflect the vast majority of our BPS population. I've been on record since April that in-person teaching under pandemic conditions requires access to resources such as testing, contact tracing, PPE, and proper facilities, amongst others, that we do not have available at the scale required to ensure safety. Our teachers and students are not responsible for the neglect that our facilities have experienced over decades, nor are they responsible for the lack of financial resources provided by the federal, state, and city governments to adequately resource their needs and those of their families. 
but they're most certainly bearing the brunt of those realities. The neighborhoods I represent have consistently had amongst the highest rates of transmission in Boston. Right now, High Park has the highest rate in the city at over 8%. Boston Public Health Commission's rulings on schools being safe to operate are already flawed because they are made using a citywide transmission rate and not a weighted one of the neighborhoods our students live in. Beyond that, they are making findings on schools as a whole and not on a building by building analysis of conditions. And that's not an honest or accurate way to assess whether our schools are safe to operate with a deadly virus on the rise. These rising rates have been expected as national experts like Dr. Fauci have stated there would be a second wave during this time period for months. And Desi in August explicitly stated that communities in red, which we now are, should be remote. Our teachers signed an MOU understanding that 4% citywide was already an unfair metric. And now even that is not being honored. Moving forward from here, either you acknowledge that those in our classrooms and with our children daily have legitimate, well-founded concerns about safety and respond accordingly, or you don't. That may not be easy, but it's also not complicated. So, you know, Council Aurelia really does set forward a, a pretty good summary here of what we heard in public comment from parents, teachers, and community members and students. You know, the student voice in this meeting, Jill, was was really strong. Yeah. And, and um, this comment from one of the students in BPS basically summarizes the student concern really, really well and helps us understand the student perspective. Let's play the quote um, from this incredible student in BPS. School committee only meets the minimum requirement when it comes to criteria necessary to keep students safe. When asked, the superintendent stated that there are at least one functioning window per classroom. This singular window is supposed to somehow constitute adequate air circulation. As it gets colder throughout the year, you'll have students and teachers freezing and getting sick in their classrooms, all because BPS thought a box fan labeled for household use only with sufficient air ventilation. Last time I checked, classrooms are not households and households are not classrooms. Not to mention the superintendent's email yesterday was grossly disappointing. With neighborhoods experiencing spikes in COVID cases, the superintendent should not be delaying hybrid for a week, but rather shutting it down. Last meeting, I didn't appreciate Lakanto cutting off O'Neill's question about the quality of food being given to students. After so many months of updates on food, we finally heard that Ms. Benavides isn't even satisfied with the meal students are eating. And the public still isn't informed on the size of these portions or if these sliders are even nutritious. Nutritious diets equal healthy minds. If students start to thrive in their learning environments, they need to be given healthier edible food options. Now you ask yourselves, would you feed your kids mozzarella sticks and marinara sauce and call it a meal? Now, to Mr. James, my elected student representative, it has always concerned me that our student rep doesn't have a vote in the only appointed school committee in the state. How ironic is it that the only elected member is a student who has no vote? Kamani represents me and the 57,000 other students and you're telling me he doesn't have a vote? You've all turned student voice into lip service. And on top of that, I've seen Lacan so rudely interrupt Mr. James when asking questions that the public deserves answers to and apparently not receiving materials on time. It seems to me that you're all afraid that Mr. James will push you to be more radical and progressive. We even see city councilors expressing their discontent with the lack of leadership and clarity BPS has shown. Many of you on this committee have failed us. Literally none of you appointed members deserve your position on the school committee because it is clear not only to me, but to the entirety of Boston that your loyalty doesn't lie with us, but with the mayor. Shame on you, period. And that is all, thank you for having me. So Jill, I thought this I thought this comment was really powerful, and and from from the student, and um, it, it wasn't just this student. There was multiple students who expressed the same sentiment. They were, you know, they're saying, "Keep us safe, make us feel like we're we're able to go back to school in a safe way." They they really sort of explained the trust issue between mm. them and the school system. And this is this is really the first meeting we began to hear from our students about how they feel about the safety of their buildings. Right. So overall, Jill, we heard uh, sort of three major themes in public comment. The first was, uh, as you heard from Councilor Arroyo and the students, that 
they're concerned about their safety, the conditions of the schools. We heard uh, from teachers who their desire is to keep everyone safe, to serve students well and teach students well, but also abide by the agreement with BPS. And then we heard from some amazing parents who came out to speak on behalf of their students with disabilities and special needs who are in school now and they wanna keep them in school. And I really, I wanna be very careful. We should be very careful not to pit these groups against each other. But in fact, they're all working towards the same thing. How do we get our kids back in school in a safe way? Uh, I think we're in a situation now uh, at the meeting last night that the Boston Teachers Union has filed an injunction so that teachers don't have to go back to school. And this may very well be settled in the courts, which is incredibly unfortunate. Um, and I wish we could have avoided having this contentious situation during this time. Well, yeah, I hadn't thought about it so deeply until you made that comment to me this morning before we started to record that it, it's, it, it's, just, it's just exceptional that we're creating a situation at an administrative level where um, teachers and students and families really who are always unified in um, the act of ensuring that, our, that their children have academic success are now being split apart because of an agreement that the union has with the district. It, it, they, they need to make that better so quickly. Um, so after public comment, we moved on to the only proposal of the night. Monica Roberts summarized the proposal from the committee that was set up to determine if the district should suspend using a test this year for admissions to the exam school. Here's Monica Roberts. So um, just to review the proposed vote, the proposed recommendation requires a vote of the school committee scheduled for October 21st, I believe. This vote will include a suspension of the current policy for admissions for entry in the school year 21-22, um, an amendment to the current policy to remove the non-traditional entry and deferment of acceptance provisions, um, implementing the working group's proposed recommendation for entry in school year 21-22, which includes developing an applicant base pool on GPA and previous MCAS scores, assigning 20% of seats at each exam school based on a straight GPA rank and preference, school preference, and assigning the remaining 80% of seats proportionally by the percentage of school-age children in Boston living in each zip code using a straight GPA rank within each zip code with students from zip codes with the lowest medium household income being placed first. So, Ross, the proposal from the committee is to not use a test this year as part of the admissions requirements for an exam school. Traditionally, it was a combination of test results and grade point average and maybe something else too, which you probably know. Can you break down for us what was historically the way that kids were admitted to exam schools and what the committee is suggesting happened this year? And I know it gets very complicated. In, in the presentation, but maybe help us understand it. I'll do my best, Jill. Um, so <laughs> the, the way that um, exam school entrance, so we have three exam schools in the Boston Public Schools, Boston Latin School, Boston Latin Academy, and the O'Brien High School. These are just three of over 20 plus high schools that we have in our school system. Mm -hmm. And the way that students enter the exam school currently is 50% of their entrance is weighted on their grades, their GPA, essentially their math and English language arts grade for their fifth grade year and then the beginning of their sixth grade year. 
Mm-hmm. So that's 50% of the, the admissions sort of weight. The other 50% is on a test called the IC test. And that's the other. So it's basically 50% of the grades, 50% of the test. Is the and, then, and then there was going to be a new test this year because the, the district decided to move away from the IC. They picked a new test. Right. They picked the NWA um, map assessment, which is more aligned to the content, the grade level content that students are taught in Boston public schools. And they, and they did that because they thought that would be a more equitable test. And then, and then the school committee asked the question, should we even use an exam this year? Does it make sense in this pandemic environment? And they set up the committee to make that decision. The committee has then recommended that, no, we're not going to use that. So, so, so are we just left? It sounds like we're just left with GPA. What, what do you, so tell, help me understand exactly how this decision is going to be made. And did, were there some unasked questions, do you think? Because I, I don't feel like we got to the nuts and bolts of this. So, so what are the questions that school committee members maybe should have asked additionally to, right. to kind of really squarely make a good decision about this? Right. So first, we should commend the committee for trying to address inequities in our school system during this pandemic. What we know yeah. is, is that um, many of our neighborhoods and our students um, have been um, impacted disproportionately uh, by the pandemic. And this committee is basically saying, look, we can't have a, a, a test this year because we have such unequal education for an, an unequal impact across our city. So what the committee has recommended is to go back a year and essentially use uh, for current sixth graders, go back and use the fifth grade um, grades from the fall and the winter. So pre-pandemic grades for math and ELA for those two terms, okay? And Mm -hmm. the committee is basically saying that's the fairest way to go about entry into exam school because it's pre-pandemic. And they're, they're then saying, um, we're going to create a process by which 20%, the highest 20% of students based on their GPA for the fall and the winter math and ELA, fifth grade, will get to choose their exam school, essentially. Like they'll get entry into the exam school. Mm-hmm. The so, so basically, we will tell you if you are in that top 20% and then you will choose an exam school. Right. And then, and, 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 that's, and, and that's comprehensive of, because it, there are kids from all over the city, right? So BPS kids plus parochial schools, charter schools, other private schools, all these kids. So they'll do that comprehensively for every child who's a resident of Boston. Correct. Every child okay. in the city who's a resident of the city of Boston has uh, the right to apply to an exam school. Mm-hmm. And um, let me, let me go back one step. To qualify for the exam school pool, the applicant pool, mm-hmm. you have to have had a B average on ELA and math for the fall and the winter term of your fifth grade. Okay. So if you've had a B, you qualify for the applicant pool. B or better. B or better. Yep. And, the, and, and, and there's one other way to qualify. If, if you took the MCAS and you were proficient or advanced on the math and ELA MCAS, you all, and if your grades were less than a B, right, you, you can still get into this pool. So okay. there's two ways into the pool. It's, it's, if you had a B average GPA, math ELA for the fall and winter term, or if you um, had a proficient or advanced in the MCAS for math and ELA. 
And so if I'm moving in from out of town, I mail in my... Well, we, I don't know. So okay. there, there, this is one yeah. question is, is um, for students who have moved in from different states, how do they, how do they enter into this pool? There's an overall question of, of private schools and Catholic schools and, and charters and district all make, they make grades slightly different, which we've, mm. we've seen this already where they have to sort of translate a grade in one school into somehow a GPA. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a collection. So you, you asked what, what was missed in this conversation? Yeah. Nobody talked at all about how they're gonna collect the grades for every student who is not in BPS. So in BPS, you know, currently the, the, the grades are submitted centrally, but there's charter Catholic district schools and then students from, from out of state. Um, it's, it's unknown how they're gonna collect those transcripts and I guess validate them in some way. And then what was the second part about zip code? Okay, so, so Jill, so let me go back to this. So the top 20% yeah. of the students are in this pool. So in order to get to the pool, you have to have a B average. Um, when you get into this pool, the top 20% of students um, per school. So basically, if you're in the pool, we ask you, Jill, where would you like to go to school? And if you say, I want to go to BLA, mm -hmm. and you're among the top 20% of the applicants to BLA mm -hmm. with your GPA, then you are assigned to BLA. Okay. And, the, and the same, the top 20% of applicants to BLS, you, you go to BLS and the top 20% of applicants to O'Brien will go to the O'Brien. So you're, you're sort of, they will tell you maybe at some point, you're the top 20%, choose your school, or you may be the top 20%, choose your school. And, and if you're the top 20% for that school choice, you get to go to that school. And if I choose BL, BLS, but BLS has more, has filled more seats than the top 20%, then do I go, do I get a second choice? Okay, so then you get to the 80%. So if you're not in the, tw in the 20%, you're in the 80%. 80% of seats will be filled by a zip code, a ranking of GPA by within a zip code, mm -hmm. okay? So every zip code in Boston will be given a weight based on the median household income for that okay. zip code. Yeah. So it, they're gonna sort of weight them from lowest medium household income to highest medium household income. And students within each zip code will be ranked by their GPA. And they'll begin to fill the seats of schools first with the lowest income zip code at a 10% rate. So 10% from this zip code, 10% from the next zip code in order from lowest um, median household income to the highest median household income until all the seats are filled. So the lowest, so the lowest uh, are probably in Dorchester and Hyde Park and- Well, no, I'm just I trying mean, to, no, yeah. I, I mean, there, there's certain part like, so Dorchester is, has some of the very high, uh, neighborhoods and very low neighborhoods, it, it, I, we would have to go through the zip codes and, and determine um, which, which zip codes have the lowest weights. That wasn't named last night. They didn't sort of release zip code by zip code, but we can, I'm sure we could find that and post that on our website. Yeah. But if I'm, but if I'm a student living in a higher income part of the city, but I am low income, do I, am I at some no, it's not, so it is, this is, this is, no, they're not going to verify individual 
family's income. They're going oh, I to know, hear- but mm-hmm. but that's what I'm saying. Like if I live in the if I'm if I live in low income housing in the South End, which I would imagine ranks based on the priorities that you just said is going to be at the bottom of assignment, right? But it I, will be I'm, higher. The, the The potential that the South End may have a higher uh, median family income. It, it, yeah. That's right. They they may lie on the on the on the upper side of the median income potentially. If you're a, a family that lives in poverty in the South End, you're still part of that zip code. And so there was a there was um, some conversation or a question by uh, Mr. O'Neill who asked, um, "Shouldn't we be using geocode? Right? Geocodes are neighborhood-based codes. Right. This is a, a sort of a swath of yeah. a zip code, right? And so yes, to answer your question, if you're a low-income student in a higher-income neighborhood, um, you will be treated like you're a higher-income student. Okay. 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 Um, and now, and it's important to note that this is, in, it, by zip code, is every student who's in a charter BPS school, a Catholic school, private school in any way, uh, they're, all, they're all treated the same way, okay? So they'll run through that lottery um, from, sorry, the, the run through that process based on GPA, based on zip code, um, based on lowest uh, family income to the highest family income zip codes. Um, and they'll keep on doing that at a 10% rate until they fill the 80% of seats, okay? Yeah. So Jill, there's some challenges here with fifth grade and ELA math grades, right? We talked a little bit about their grading policies may be different in different schools and different types of schools, right? We talked about how do we get those grades into the system to consider yeah. those students. Um, we should also discuss like there are going to be a lot of ties, right? Like we don't have... Um, AP courses in fifth grade that are weighted, right? We, that you, you typically get an A or a B, you know, there, there's, yeah, there's which not a, a whole lot of, right. right. There's not a whole lot of variation here. So, right. um, so right. I think there's going to, so if there's a tie, there'll be a lottery to get into the school. So mm-hmm. ultimately what we may end up here with is, is, is a more of a lottery kind of format where we have a lot of students who may qualify. Mm-hmm. We, mm-hmm. we may have a lot of ties and then there may be a lottery process to break those ties. Yeah. Um, I don't understand how there's gonna be any validation or cross checking of, of grades. In fact, we know that grades can vary uh, by school and also by teacher. We know that there's a lot of bias in grades and there's a, you know, this is a natural piece that needs to be addressed. And we haven't done a great job of this, addressing this, at least in the Boston public schools, is the standardization of grades across the school system. That just hasn't happened um, in a number of years. So is that why historically we've used a test is to try to balance out any bias that might exist in the GPA? It it is always better to use more measures than less measures. Many proponents of exam school entry would say that let's use more measures. Let's use a student, uh, an essay and and recommendations, Mm -hmm. as many measures as we can those become quite cumbersome to use. So yes, having a test is a good cross-check to GPA. And, and there's some, so if I was a school committee member last night, let me get to this, Jill, what questions would I would have wanted to know? Yeah. Um, I would have wanted to know how are we gonna collect this information from all the schools across the city? I would wanna know what the numbers are currently. So how many students, um, are there, about, right? right? How many how many seats are there in these exams? For how many spots? Exactly. Right. Right. Um, I would like to have run this 
in previous year scenarios to sort of show what would happen yeah. um, if, if this policy was implemented. I would like to know, because we have this data, how many kids achieved a B last year on, yeah. on, uh, on, on, in, their, in their GPA. I would yeah. like to know how many kids achieved an A. I would like to know what the grades of the kids who entered the exam schools last year were to just to better understand how this is all going to play out. None of those answers were, none of those questions were answered. Um, there was no numbers given last night. Um, which it I was, was suggested though, that not every student who has an A or has a B will end up in exam school. So it, it suggested to me, at least I think what I was hearing is we don't have enough extraordinary spots for extraordinary students. So some, right, some students are right. going to Right, that's what I understand. And let, and let me make one more important po important point here before we move on to some questions from school committee members. Um, the reason the B was chosen, the mm -hmm. B GPA was chosen, is because the, the committee went back and looked at uh, uh, retention rates amongst students in exam schools currently. And right. they, what they noted was that the student who had a B in math and ELA more highly retained through 10th grade at an exam school, upwards yeah. of over 80%. So that's why they said they basically, the committee was making the point, if you have a B, you should be able to achieve it at the exam school. The, what this was missing was the, the test. They, they, the student may have had a B, but they may have had a very high score on the test. It, it, we don't know that, right? So right. we don't know, we didn't further explain that. But, but Jill, let, so those are some of the issues. I know this is quite complicated and there's a lot to play out, but let's play a quote because Mr. O'Neill asked some, some really important questions somewhat aligned to what you and I were just discussing. Let's play the quote from Mr. O'Neill. To implement this this year with everything else going on. So you said now all of a sudden parents don't have to do anything. Now students are going to hear about it. This is a big process, a big change to implement. And how do we feel about how we're going to get this information and not only for our students, but also for the private and parochial and, and, and charter students in the city how are we going to be gathering their grades? What, what, what is the message to them if they're going to be interested in um, being invited to apply, et cetera? How, how confident we are on, uh, Ms. Sullivan, I see you smiling quite a bit, so I suspect this was quite a bit of conversation. This is a huge sea change, and the district is dealing with a lot right now. What's the process going to be on this? So, so then Monica Roberts, um, who gave this presentation and, and is, is somewhat in charge of this process in DPS, um, answered with the following response. Let's play the quote from Monica. So for our BPS students, um, which I believe comprises about 75% of our applicant pool, um, they will already be in the pool. And then our focused efforts will be on really calling parents, making sure they understand um, what the exam schools are, the opportunity they represent, um, working with them to um, connect with the schools and to rent the schools. For our other schools, we will be working um, with the other sectors as we always do to make sure that information um, gets to their families. But also I think um, in the last year, we've talked about sending information directly home um, to, to students. And I believe we're able to get that information um, uh, because uh, particularly for the parochial and the, the, the charter schools through DESE um, and those submissions. So I think we want to do a lot of our focused efforts on outreach. We are getting a lot of calls already, as you can imagine. So um, we also have um, a lot of people waiting um, to see what we're going to do. We have um, started thinking through what a communications plan 
would be in partnership with um, Jonathan Palumbo um, from our communications team. So we feel confident that we will be able to do it. It will be a lift, it will be a push, um, but we also believe that we can reallocate resources to support that effort. So Jill, what, what we heard from Monica is that they're gonna, gonna reach out to students and that parents should, you know, basically Monica said earlier, parents can just sit back and wait and they'll be contacted and told if they're in this pool. And, and she talked about these communication methods to outreach to students who may be in this pool. She did not talk at all about how they're gonna collect the GPA information from every school. She didn't sort of talk about how th this is a brand new process and how they would implement it. She was really more of like, how are we gonna to communicate to parents who may qualify? Um, I think there's gonna be a whole lot more in implementation than just a simple communication to parents that they, that they qualified for an exam school. And um, to be clear, there was no vote last night. This was just a presentation on which they will vote at the next school committee meeting. So hypothetically, I, I don't know, maybe stuff is being done in the background, but there, there is no vote that says, yes, this, this is the way we'll move forward yet. And so if you're a parent of a sixth grade student, you're a little bit sitting with bated breath. This is flipped. This is, you know, for for parents, let, let's just play this out a little bit, Jill. You know, parents are, we're, we're, everyone's remote, right? We're all remote learning since yeah. March. No yeah. one knows when school's going to go back in session or what's going to happen in this pandemic. And we just released another bit of chaos into your life. Yeah. Right? yeah. Uh, no, I don't know. I mean, you went through this process last year. I've gone through this right. process a couple of years. I mean, it, this is a chaotic year for a sixth grader. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And, and this so is the, yeah. much, so much like unknown. Yeah, and, and now is, and now we don't even know whether or not which what am I going to end up in the top twenty percent? Am I going to end up in the eighty percent? How does my zip code weigh against somebody else's zip code? I mean, ay ay ay. Yep. Yeah. Ay ay ay. Um. So so this you know so Jill, there's you know there's some consideration here of like when we have a massive implementation challenge like this, sometimes um, BPS brings in outside help. You know to. You know, clearly, we're having a little bit of trouble right now with like getting kids on, like a thousand kids on a bus, bus right? Yeah. So maybe we, you know, BPS could use some implementation help. So Mr. O'Neill asked this question about, you know, potentially adding some additional supports. Let's play the quote. Are we going to have additional support for this year? So we had um, some outside folks provide support in the past when we were doing the external advisory, when we were doing the, um, um, uh, the school quality rankings, et cetera. This is gonna be a huge effort and people will be nervous about, you know, how are calls made? If a grade point average is the same here and the same here, how are decisions being made? Are, are we gonna bring an outside group to help us in on this? How are we gonna be transparent? How are we gonna communicate? How are we gonna build trust on this? People are not confident in, in our ability to deliver on some complex changes over time. So, so clearly, Jill, Mr. O'Neill has, has sort of indicated that in the past, we, when we had massive changes with student assignment policies and so on, that we bought in help to yeah. figure this stuff out. Um, what we heard from BPS is they're gonna work internally um, to make sure this happens. But there's so many other things that BPS needs to be doing right now to get kids back to school. I think we have a real issue with implementation of this and we, there was no detail shared about an implementation plan. And by the way, this is like starting this month. Like they need to start this process this month right after the vote is taken at the end yeah. of October. I mean, you find out whether or not you're admitted historically in March, right? Correct, correct. And they, and they are on that same timeline. So they're basically laying forth that we're gonna finish this by March. Yeah. Um, so then the, the superintendent um, points out a couple of uh, challenges that lie ahead. 
Let's play the yeah. quote from the superintendent. Really just trying to make sure we have our quality control processes in place and that we're being transparent about everything because we'll be looking, people will be looking really closely this year. Very close. On the implementation, they'll be scrutinizing everything. They'll be looking for ways, the cracks in it. And so I think that we just have to be extremely transparent and extremely um, careful in our own quality processes and how we check and double check everything and how we certify, especially when, you know, there's been allegations around grade inflation, for instance, and this is heavy on GPA. So, you know, we can control that on BPS side, but maybe not an outside um, folks coming in. And so, you know, these measures are pre-COVID, but, you know, we still want to make sure that we're certifying that the GPAs that come in are, are the GPAs that were earned. So, so she's basically saying here, Ross, right, that we, you know, like grade inflation, she's, she's pointing out one of the big issues here, how in the world, not only how we're going to get all the data, but then how are we going to discern which data is the right data in order to, to proceed with everything else? Right. She, she, she said a few times that she was going to validate it, but I'm not sure how you validate grades from a year before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing that this points out to me as we talk about, you know, the, the, the committee's chosen the B or higher GPA, and you talked about why they decided to do that. And um, the fact that there will be many more students than will fit into those three exam schools, just I don't understand then, and there was some conversation about this, but I don't understand why there aren't more exam schools. I and mean, if we have that many extraordinary kids, why wouldn't we spend some time creating more extraordinary schools and not just fixate on the three exam schools that operate really well in the system? There, I mean, there are so many high schools that we could be focused on to make sure that we have a great high school for everyone. And you know the other thing, and the and the way the meeting really ended was with Tanisha Sullivan, who's the president of the NAACP locally, and it, who serves on this committee. And you know she kind of pointed out that while we're at it and looking at high schools, we might want to also look downstream to where the problem starts, which is our elementary schools. Here's Ms. Sullivan. We cannot allow this to sit. Forget about an exam school. We have fourth graders who cannot read. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Jill, this, this committee has spent an extraordinary amount of time determining how students in the city of Boston will get into a finite number of high schools. Yeah. Um, and I, I thought uh, Ms. Sullivan's comment that we really should be spending much more time on trying to make sure that we don't have fourth graders who can't read. Yeah. Um, and we'll post this presentation on our, our on this blog, um, but there's a slide that gives an overview by race of students' grades and students' MCAS performance. Um, and again, members, school committee members showed surprise by this, but this is what people have been talking about for years. For years. We have to, we have to focus on fixing this problem early on and that we can't um, be talking at this later stage about equitable ways to get into a finite amount of resources when we should be addressing the problem of the opportunity gaps um, that make this that that cause this problem so early on in our students education so 
So Jill, um, there'll be a vote and it will be in, in two weeks. So I think it's October 21st will be the vote um, right. on this proposal. I hope that members of the school committee ask for more data from the school system. And I hope that there'll be an operational plan for how this will be executed. And I hope that part of that plan will be bringing in some outside expertise to help implement this process. Um, because the last thing we need at this time is to have um, errors made. And let me, let me just go back to one point, Jill. The school system announced a few months ago that they made an error in this year's exam school process. And then in fact, they, they left off a number of students who should have got into the exam schools and they let in students who shouldn't have gotten into the exam schools based by their criteria. So the school system has not, hasn't even done their current process um, perfectly, right? They've made mistakes. Um, and, and we'll post the article about this mistake they made a few months ago. Um, so they really do need some outside help. And I'm hopeful that next school committee meeting, we'll hear about the operational plan, we'll hear about potentially the outside help, and we'll get the numbers um, that are behind this plan. But ultimately, I commend this committee for trying hard to figure out how we solve for inequities during this pandemic. It's an, it's an absolutely important conversation and it needs to continue. Now, I, th I think that I agree with you entirely about that. And I think that the, that committee's work is, is very important. What, what really is unsettling for me about this meeting and, and the couple of meetings prior is that because leadership right now is so centralized and there's such a, a tight group of individuals that seem to be attempting to oversee everything, we're not taking advantage of this incredible system that's already in place, right? Where that group of individuals could be working with the 125 schools and their leaders. And then we could be trusting those leaders to run their schools safely, transparently, and in the best interest of the students and families that they know really well. What concerns me is that instead, circumstances are being created where the district is pitting itself against teachers. They're creating a situation now where teachers and families are pitted against one another. And if this isn't handled well, you know, the next year's admissions into exam schools, we're creating a situation where incredible students will be pitted against other incredible students. To me, this, it's just very worrisome because in this current climate, with this current crisis, with things, families being so encumbered by so many different things to create yet another situation where there might be distrust and to create a situation where people might start to blame one another as they fight for what you know, they have the right to have. Um, it just, it just doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel like the way our city could or should be operating. I agree, Jill, we can, we can do better. And that's what happened last night at school committee. Thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston's students. Have a great day.